Welcome to the Reformation Fellowship Podcast. Reformation Fellowship provides support and fellowship for all who would stand for the Reformation of Christ Church worldwide. We long to see the church revitalized by the gospel and seek to encourage all who share that vision. We gather together in gospel-hearted fellowship around gospel-minded theology. Welcome back to the Reformation Fellowship Podcast. My name is Justin Shell, and I'm your host. In today's episode, we're going to be talking with Dr. Andrew Atherstone, tutor in history and doctrine and Latimer Research Fellow at Wycliffe Hall, University of Oxford. Today's conversation will be all about Oxford. How has God over the years, even centuries in this one place, moved through relationships, through ministries, through churches, through networks, to bring renewal and reformation to the church, both in Oxford, but in the wider UK, and sometimes, yes, even around the world. So let's dig into that now, seeing how reformation flows out of fellowship over the centuries in this one city of Oxford. Andrew, thank you for joining us here on the Reformation Fellowship Podcast. We're so glad you could join us. That's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yes, yes. Introduce yourself a little bit for our listeners, those that may not know as much what you're up to. Uh, Andrew Atherston, and um, I teach at an evangelical seminary, part of the University of Oxford. Um, My particular love is uh, learning lessons from the past to help the church today. So that's what we do in the classroom quite a lot. Um, and uh, especially the history of uh, modern Christian movements, history of evangelicalism, mm. um, uh, especially in, in English context. And w- w- I've been in, in Oxford here and around in the best part of 20 years or so. Um, so not very far flung. Yeah. yeah. Well, the world comes to Oxford is what they say. So uh, you don't need to go very far to, to, to see other parts. Um, yeah yeah true true enough we get we have um it's a great city to visit lots of tourists and lots of lots of visiting students summer schools uh, Mm -hmm. so there's a definite buzz and hubbub about the place yeah yeah awesome well i love how you said um exploring uh history so that we can learn from it so we can um uh it can inform the present and and even as we move into the future. And really that's part of what we want to do today on this, in this chat, because in the, in this season of the Reformation Fellowship podcast, we are visiting um, past and present examples of um, communities, of institutions, of organizations, of networks who through friendship and shared commitment to the things of God have um, by God's grace through his sovereignty been able to see renewal, reformation, revival, mission take place. So rich reform, rich um, fellowship, uh, rich community resulting in and being part of driving uh, rich uh, renewal. And so today, as you know, Andrew, we're going to talk about uh, not just a, a place in one time, we're going to talk about a, a city over time. Uh, we're going to talk about Oxford and uh, not just one example, but maybe several examples of how the Lord brought renewal, refreshment, revival 
in and through networks, organizations, institutions there in the city of Oxford. So I wonder if you could um, give us a 3,000 foot, 30,000 foot flyover of some of the key elements from the history of Oxford of, of those kinds of communities. Well, Oxford University begins as a community experiment uh, where mm -hmm. there are young people wanting to learn Christian theology, uh, wanting to sit at the feet of uh, more senior thinkers. Um, and so they, they gravitated towards the city uh, and uh, had little, little colleges uh, mm -hmm. where they would, they would reside together, they'd eat together, they'd pray, they'd worship God and uh, study Christian theology. Oxford is the first university in England. Uh, there were similar experiments in, in France, uh, but here it begins about 800 years or so ago. So it begins as, as these residential communities, and uh, lots of uh, renewal movements have sprung from the city over mm. the centuries. You might think of the renewal movements under John Wycliffe um, mm. and uh, the Lollards, getting the Bible into English, um, for the, the first time, uh, he was an Oxford scholar uh, down at Balliol College. Uh, mm. You might think of uh, some of the Reformation movements uh, in, in the 16th century or the Puritans. John Owen, the Prince of the Puritans, was vice mm. chancellor of the university. Um, or perhaps in, in later centuries, it was the renewal and revival under uh, Whitfield and Wesley or uh, the Oxford movement in the 19th century, the high church revival. And of course, Oxford's been a great exporter of people around the world as well. So uh, many missionaries have gone from this university. Uh, thinkers have gone out from here. They've been resourced here, perhaps as young people, as students, uh, young theologians, and then scattered around the world. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I want to come back to that theme of, of youth movements or, or young people. Um, so we'll do that in, in a few minutes. But as we look at church history, we often see, um, and you mentioned a few of them, circles of friends at the center of these movements of Reformation and Revival. Um, could you take us a little bit deeper into some of these famous friendships from Oxford that, that God's used in the past? Well, Oxford has, by its nature, I guess like many universities, but because of the college structure, uh, it's it's good at building rivalries, but also really good at building friendships. People mm. are living on top of each other. Uh, you're spending hours of the day together. You're studying. You're 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 thinking. You're exercising. Uh, you're, you're you're praying together. So those relationships form quickly um, and very deeply. I mean, I might think, for example, of what's known as the Oxford Holy Club, uh, mm. which was that group of friends in the. Uh, 1730s, uh, around John Wesley and his brother Charles um, in different colleges. One was at Christchurch, one was a, a fellow of Lincoln College. There was George Whitfield's just across the road at a, a much poorer college called, called Pembroke. Um, and uh, they just got together outside of the regular curriculum, outside of the enforced um, chapel events, uh, just for expressions of, of Christian friendship together. Mm. Uh, they got up early in the morning to read the scriptures. Uh, they were involved in acts of philanthropy on the streets of Oxford. Mm. Uh, they were discussing the Bible. They were handing out tracts. 
they were helping poor children or, or perhaps uh, the wives of, of debtors who were locked up in the prison. They were visiting uh, those who were on death row in Oxford Castle. Um, but a little group of, of undergraduates and young dons, young teaching fellows, mm. um, who just for the force of living on top of each other, developed these really close bonds, which were lifelong. I mean, the Wesleys and Whitfields helped to transform the nature of Christianity right across Britain uh, and in, in North America as well in, in mm -hmm. those years. And it begins yeah. here in this city. Yeah. Yeah, that's, um, that's great. It's a great example of youth, um, younger leaders uh, leading out, um, pursuing friendship and then pursuing renewal together. And then those, those friendships do become lifelong. By the time uh, someone is in middle age, they're often uh, set in their ways, set in their thinking. Perhaps they've had many disappointments along the way. Um, and uh, yet these folk in their, in their 20s have a, have a bolder vision for what is possible, uh, for mm. rewriting the future. Um, and not just doing that solo, but doing that sort of linked arm in arm. That, that's mm. true in all sorts of ways, not just not just in the Christian world, but uh, you know, many revolutionary movements which have turned the world upside down for better or for worse have, mm. have started uh, amongst young people, started in, in universities. Uh, think of some of the ways in which the universities in the 1960s, much more recently, kind of shook the... Um, shook well, shook their communities, <laughs> shook their governments, um, and that's that's happening in Oxford today. Um, people in their teens and twenties often have that sort of passion, which says uh, we need to change things, and yeah. and we're going to make it happen. We're not going to rely upon our our parents and grandparents. This is your generation. Let's do it now. Um, so I think that's that's something to do with uh, with youthfulness. But if you combine that youthfulness with Christian conversion and mm. with longing to see the world changed under the power of the gospel, then you've got a really potent combination. Mm. And uh, that's been part of the force of, of a city like Oxford, exporting not just youthful ideas, but, but youthful energy combined with, with gospel-centeredness. Mm. Yeah. What do you think... You know, when I look at um, a lot of, particularly in the Reformed West, uh, a lot of our networks, um, I'm sure denominations, but uh, I think of four or five leading ministries, at least here in the U.S., and I know it's a little different there in the U.K., but um, the, the average age of leadership <laughs> for these um, these networks or organizations seems to be closer to 60s to 70s than to 20s. Um, what do you think, are there lessons we can learn today um, for, for, you know, for the Western reform movement in terms of how do we, how do we think of youth? How do we, um, how do we raise up, encourage um, these youth who, who, maybe have energy and maybe have vision that we, we don't have anymore? Uh, well, seniority is to be honoured. You know, grey hairs are somebody's glory, aren't they? The wisdom that comes through years. 
Um, so there's 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 much to be said for that. Um, and the older and older that I get, I mean, I'm thoroughly into middle age now. I like to think that you know even middle aged and elderly folk have have a lot to offer in changing the world, mm. even though we have fewer fewer years left. Um, but there's there's definitely something to be said for um, the fact that often innovation and fresh thinking uh, begins begins young. And many of these ministries have actually been launched by someone who was young. It's just that they've been leading that ministry for 40 or 50 years, mm. um, and now they're very senior. But th- yeah. they were still at it when they were in their mid-20s or, or early 30s. Mm-hmm. Um, part of the way in which a movement uh, continues to have impact is by making sure that it continues to reinvent itself, mm. um, that it's not just started by a young person who gets old and then and then dies and a new ministry needs to be reinvented. Mm. Uh, but if you're bringing that youthful innovation in and being willing to let it shape the ministry, <laughs> be, being willing as a, as a middle-aged or, or senior leader to... Uh, to listen to the young folk who are are driving forward, um, mm. then it actually gives. It, it might be a disruptive influence, but it gives your ministry greater longevity, mm. um, rather than it only lasting as long as your energy lasts. Yeah. Mm. M- most most ministries, I I reckon, looking at it historically, have a thirty to forty year lifespan, at the most, because. Mm. Uh, that's the sort of length of, of somebody's working life. Um, mm. But the ministries that go on two generations, three generations, or maybe still strong after 150 years, are always those which have looked to, to bring youthfulness in right from the beginning. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's, um, that's an interesting thing to think about is the combination of youth with institutions. Uh, we we often think of those two things as diametrically opposed, but it seems like in a in a in a city like Oxford, where you have such a historic institution, and you could say institutions, um, being a place where even through the institution you would you have ongoing youth movements. Almost you have not necessarily each generation, but. Um, but just a few years apart, maybe you, you, you'll see another youth movement come up. How, how, how does that happen, do you think, as you look back? Um, how, do you, how, does, how do you have an ecosystem where you can invest in something long-term like an institution while also not letting that become um, a, a place where none of the youth are welcome and uh, we have to overthrow the establishment <laughs> to get anything done. Well, it's, it's the nature of a university as a particular sort of ecosystem that mm. it's full of young people, you know, yeah. perhaps more so than, than any other institution. Yeah. Um, if you went into the political world in parliament, the age profile is much older. This, inst- mm. this institution is ancient, 800 years or so, um, but is full of people arriving at the age of 18. You know, mm. the 18 to 21s are, are the lifeblood of the place. Um, and I think because the student generation is so short, uh, a student span is typically three years mm. as an undergraduate degree. Yeah. Um, 
and but that three years becomes um, someone's entire university experience, and therefore you don't have time to say, well, in in five years' time we'll start thinking about this because um, you're you're in and out <laughs> before you're then dispersed around the world into careers and um, and and all sorts of other things. Um, so if a university is going to take its its undergraduates seriously, which Oxford, like other institutions, tries to do, you have to act swiftly. Mm. It's no good saying to, uh, to to the student body agitating on a particular question, well, we will think about that and we'll get back to you um, because there's a kind of demand for, for urgency of action. So um, if if you can kind of see that as a boon and an advantage to the place, um, then it does mean you're, you're having to be very responsive um, and very flexible. One of the drives in an institution um, would be to say, well, we'll outlast the student generation. You know, this particular agitation, it mm. might last for a few years, but we've been here for, as, you know, for 800 or something, we'll, we'll just keep going. Actually, a wise vice chancellor and a wise senior leadership team says, no, we, we've, we've got to respond um, immediately. And that's why I think in the, uh, in the history of the university, you do see these renewal movements because often young people are given their right to lead immediately. The, mm. the Oxford Intercollegiate Christian Union, um, called, uh, called the OIQ, um, that's the Christian Union in each of the colleges. There's about 40 colleges and each of them have a student group and they're, they're part of this, this wider network. Um, those are student-run groups, mm-hmm. which means the president of the whole Christian Union movement in Oxford is going to be typically 20 years old. Uh, you're not even looking to the youth pastors in the church or the student pastors or the senior team to pastor the Christian Union. It's students leading students. Um, And by nature, they're young. And that's why I think Oxford has been really good at exporting Christian leaders, because through that sort of evangelical student ministry, um, you you take on leadership, you take on responsibility, uh, you take on this sense of, I'm only in the post for a year. What can we decisively do in the space of 12 months? Mm. Uh, Which is not the normal attitude of a a settled pastor. You might Mm -hmm. need a sort of 10 or 15 year uh, vision. Mm. Yeah. Well, we've we've talked a little bit about uh, the university there, um, and I'm sure that our listeners, in some form or another, are are familiar with bits of the history of of the University of Oxford. Um, could you tell us a little bit about, as an institution, how has God used Oxford? sometimes formally, sometimes informally, in seasons of reformation and revival? Well, one example might be the value of a Christian education uh, in the Puritan times. So yeah. Oxford was, uh, this is the, the generation after the Reformation, uh, Oxford became very much associated with um, high church theology, uh, Laudianism, Mm. Um, and the royal cause during the English Civil War, which was in, in some form a, a theological contest as well as a political uh, political one, um, Oxford became the royal capital, uh, and King Charles I 
retreated here and used it as his, his capital in, instead of London. So uh, after the Civil War, there were strong evangelical calls for the university to be wiped flat. It had been such a centre of anti-Puritan teaching, anti-evangelical teaching, that many said, well, we, 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 don't, we mustn't have a university anymore. Mm. Let's, uh, let's erase the place. You know, we can turn the colleges into something else. Um, and John Owen came along and said, no, there's a real potential here for Christian education as a driver for Christian renewal. Mm. Uh, what, what we want to do is not flatten the colleges and blow them up with dynamite. What we want to do is simply renew them as places where young pastors can come and be trained mm. in Christian theology from an evangelical perspective, uh, where they can be preaching schools um, and if you if you multiply those numbers in class and then spread them across the country uh, and you keep on doing that every year, you send out a third of your student body or so, um, mm -hmm. then, then quite quickly you'll repopulate England with, with gospel preachers. Mm. Um, so that was a real turning point in, in the 1650s mm. where Oxford might have ended, yeah. uh, but John Owen says, no, let's keep it, but re-envisage what this university is for. Mm -hmm. uh, that'd be one example of of a renewal movement influencing the country uh, I, I suppose another would be the way in which um, Oxford because of its position in England and England because of its position across the globe um, at least until the early 20th century uh, because of the political influence that it, it had with the old British Empire and I'm thinking Queen Victoria's times um it there was just a very far reach unusually that it had as a city mm. more perhaps than a, a university in cologne or, or, or paris would do because mm. these these english-speaking people went everywhere <laughs> in administration of of global affairs yeah. um and and that means um when they were christians or when they were going as missionaries um, they could be trained up in the city and, again, travel the globe. I think of somebody like James Hannington. Uh, he was an Oxford-trained uh, minister in the 19th century. Um, but instead of going down to a rural parish in Sussex, um, he was actually sent uh, by, by boat out to what used to be known as Eastern Equatorial Africa, uh, modern-day Uganda and actually lost his life there um, in the 1870s mm. um, on part of the Christian mission that he was involved in. Um, yeah. But that, that'll be, there are many, many examples like that of people who have come to Oxford, perhaps encountered the message of Jesus Christ here for the first time, mm -hmm. um, and then that becomes a hinge point. They then travel the world um, taking that sort of message with them. J.C. Ryle, mm. uh, famous bishop of Liverpool, would be another example. I and mean, he didn't travel the world, uh, though his writings have done. Mm -hmm. um, comes to Oxford as a, a very wealthy, well-connected young man, um, Eton College at school, then Christchurch here in Oxford. But it, it's here that he meets Jesus Christ for the first time. He's mm. converted as an undergraduate. And, and the whole future of his ministry changes. But because he's still a person of influence, 
he can now use that influence for the sake of the gospel rather than merely as a a politician or a banker or whatever he intended to do in the first place. Mm. Yeah. What about... um, Being Oxford, being a centre of education, one of the things that often comes out of centres of education, and, and if they're doing well, good... Um, good resources, good um, publications, good uh, material for the wider church. Uh, is there, do we see that happening coming out of Oxford historically? We have, um, has, was it a place where um, resources for the church were being created and, and exported? Well, we have a very famous press the Oxford University Press, uh, which, you know, has been a Bible publisher uh, and a a publisher of lots of Christian resources historically, uh, books of prayers and devotion and those sorts of things. Um, But I I, I suppose in in another way, um, many Oxford students have gone on to be writers. Um, So uh, they may be shaped by the ideas here, um, and then those ideas begin to travel the world. One high church example uh, would be the famous Tractarians, uh, the, the so-called Oxford movement. So this is um, John Henry Newman, um, Edward Pusey, John Keeble, mm. uh, the, the famous triumvirate, um, who began to write not weighty tomes, but pithy theological tracts. They were great believers in the power of the 25-page pamphlets, um, and those pamphlets were were hugely influential in shaping um, shaping British Christianity, and then also global Christianity in a, in a high church direction. Um, the, the the power of um, the tract that the busy minister has time to read. Oxford as a as a university loves to. Um, favour weighty tomes that will end up on dusty shelves in the Bodleian Library, um, mm-hmm. perhaps for a, a few doctoral researchers to read. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the power of the tract, really significant. John Henry Newman knew it. John, John Charles Ryle knew it from an evangelical perspective. Mm-hmm. Or, or think of uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, perhaps our, our most famous 20th century Oxford theologian, he didn't actually teach in the theology faculty. Uh, he was, I mean, the, the theologians in the theology faculty from the mid-20th century, very few could name. Uh, but here's someone in the English faculty. And again, what's his genius? It's, um, it's short, pithy, really accessible books which mm. travel the world. Yeah. He, he's writing um, highly high-brow academic literature um, on in his academic specialisms, uh, but he's also writing popular pieces, uh, mm-hmm. the, the uh, mid-20th century equivalent of the podcast, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the radio broadcast <laughs> in the 1940s, and he's harnessing these new media. He's not embarrassed about it, mm-hmm. uh, just to get these ideas out from the Oxford lecture room into the hands of people right across the globe. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe the $150 monograph series um 
150 per volume isn't what we should be going for if we want to reach the world and renew the church. <laughs> well, uh, yes. I mean, I've, I've written a few of those myself, so uh, I think there's definite value in it, um, but it's part of a much bigger picture. Yeah. Um, you, you, you can't settle with, with that. That might be foundational work, yeah. but then it also needs to be popularized. It needs to be simplified, but it also needs to be, it needs to be propagated. Mm. Uh, you know, it needs to be, needs to be free to air. It needs to be downloadable at the, the click of a button. Yeah. Uh, rather than having to stay for six months before you can afford to read it. Mm. Yeah. I'm going to change gears just a little bit from looking at the impact of, of uh, Oxford University as, a, as an institution. I wonder if there are examples of what we might today call pastoral networks um, from the history of Oxford that, that had an impact on the church and her mission. These relational groups of like-minded um, gospel leaders. A, a very early one uh, back in the 14th century would be the circle around John Wycliffe. So he's associated with Oxford. He's writing uh, lots of major philosophical treatises for a, a university audience. Uh, but he's also really concerned with popular preaching. Um, and he's expelled from the university because of these radical ideas, uh, ends up in the little parish of Lutterworth um, up uh, in Leicestershire and uh, gathers around him. Would you call it a pastoral network? Uh, so it's, it's a network of uh, like-minded pastors mm -hmm. um, who are keen to get the word of God out. Mm -hmm. um, so shortly after Wycliffe's, um, death, uh, they begin the process of translating the Bible from the Latin Vulgate version into English for the first time. Mm. I mean, there have been bits of the Bible in English in, in previous generations, um, under King Alfred, for example, you know, the Psalms in English. But in terms of the whole text in the language of the people of the country, mm -hmm. um, and that pastoral network becomes very influential um, because it, it's it's bound together by common cause. Let's mm. get the scriptures out. And as we get the scriptures out, so we get the gospel out. Uh, a lot of persecution of them. Uh, many of these lollards were meeting in, in secret, um, out in, in fields and forests, uh, rather than in, in parish churches. Mm. But uh, again, a driver for renewal in English public life. If you go and visit the Houses of Parliament, at Westminster uh, and uh, study its artwork. There are lots of portraits there which have been put up to demonstrate key significant turning points in the history of the nation. And one of my favorite ones is uh, a painting of the Lollards. Mm. Um, and it's a painting of a little group of Christians out in the countryside. And you can see the parish church in the background to which um, perhaps they didn't have access um, and you can see one man looking over his shoulder to see when the authorities might come and close down this pastoral network and mm. exterminate it. Um, but there they are, men and women together, young children with the scriptures open, yeah. praying and studying. Um, mm. And uh, the fact that that was identified by the, the art department in, in Parliament as really significant in the history of the nation 
mm-hmm. um, shows us it wasn't just a minor Christian concern, but it you know set a whole trajectory for then uh, William Tyndale <laughs> and the, the the Bible in English and the Reformation in later days. Mm. Wonderful. Well, we are closing in on the end of our time. So I wanted to spend the last few minutes trying to pull out some some application points for for the present day. We've we've tried to do that a little bit along the way. But as you think back over, we're talking about 800 years plus of history, um, what do you think are some of the most important uh, points of takeaway or potential models or um, ideas that we can consider from uh, from the movements taking place in and, and coming out of Oxford uh, for for the church today, for um, maybe for institutions today, certainly for for pastors today. I suppose the most evident one is that uh, commitment to the scriptures is always the driver of renewal in every Mm. generation. That's the story linking many of these renewal movements together, Um, getting the Bible open and studying it together. Let it shape your ideas. Let it shape your vision for your future. uh, Let it shape your whole priorities in life. Uh, mm. That's been true of you know the Lollards, the Reformers, the Puritans, uh, Wes- Wesley and Whitfield. Mm. Um, so we're not just talking about renewal for renewal's sake. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christian renewal, spiritual renewal is renewal uh, le- led by the Spirit taking the Word of God and 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 setting it loose in people's lives. Uh, another theme uh, we've touched on is. Uh, the power of community and the power of partnership. Uh, that when you want to be renewed under the word of God, gather like-minded people. Um, mm. And there's no deeper friendship um, than friendship uh, with the, the bonds of the gospel uniting you together. You know, mm-hmm. those are the, those roots go very, very deep um, and, and outlast all sorts of other stresses and strains. So what we see in all these renewal movements is it's it's a community of like-minded people who share a common gospel vision, uh, mm-hmm. which which drives their purposes, even amongst all their uh, character differences and perhaps you know uh, differences of vision. I mean, w- Wesley and Whitfield uh, fell out quite seriously at different points, mm. uh, but in common they had that um, that at its heart. And I mm. suppose a, a, a third. Uh, theme which has emerged from our conversation is uh, an in, the value of an institution if it's continually renewed itself and, mm. and is not only thinking about itself but is thinking about the community in which it's set uh, whether that is the whole nation in which it's set or the whole globe in which it's set or, or even just its own town and and city mm-hmm. um, if you think about uh, the health of the institution too much without thinking about the health of your setting, then you've mm. got it the wrong way around. Yeah. Um, and Oxford's always been an exporter of life and ideas. And that in itself has helped to renew an institution and means that it's, it's still renewable and it's still going, going strongly, you know, centuries after its creation. Mm. 
Yeah. Well, final question then. Let's say um, our listeners have become intrigued with um, this uh, the city of Oxford and want to um, want to read a little bit, explore a little bit uh, the history of the church in that city. Is there is there a resource? Are there a couple of books you might recommend for someone that would want to explore Christian Oxford? There's lots of uh, popular things that have been written that will help you as perhaps as a tourist in the city uh, for a few days. Um, Julia Cameron has written a very helpful guide to Reformation Oxford, uh, which will lay out some of the key things to visit, uh, some of the the places to explore. Um, I've tried by hand at a, a little guide to uh, Christian Oxford. Um, it's called. It's one of the travel guides from Day One Publishers, mm. um, and it's called Oxford City of Saints, Scholars, and Dreaming Spires, mm. uh, where again you'll find maps and plenty of photographs and and many of these stories written in as well. Um, but the, there's uh, there's lots of similar resources. Um, I think mostly um, come and visit. There's mm. so much history on the streets of Oxford. Don't just read about it in the books. Um, come and come and pay us a visit here and uh, and do some touring, um, yeah. and you can see how the the history comes to life around us. Yeah. Well, in in light of that invitation, I wonder if I could actually ask one more question. Could you tell us the maybe from your vantage point the state of the the church in Oxford today? How can we pray for the city? Um, what are the What's encouraging that you see? What may be uh, points of prayer for the city? Pray that Oxford's desire to be renewed uh, under the gospel is something that the city is famous for in the 21st century, Mm. as much as in the history books. Mm -hmm. Uh, we, We want this to be true of the present generation, not just of these, uh, these famous stories of of yesteryear Mm. Uh, so uh, Christianity in a a university setting is always under stress and pressure Mm. Um, and uh, Christianity in a a secular and plural uh, nation as we are in Western Europe is always Mm. under pressure Um, Mm. but pray that there are um, small groups of young people uh, doing the same thing opening up the Bible and saying, uh, Lord, let it loose in our generation, uh, mm-hmm. being, being renewed in that way, then Oxford would then be famous uh, as, a, as an exporter of gospel things, not just of, of, of Nobel Prizes um, and uh, you know, wonderful uh, scientific discoveries or, or great pieces of art and, and literature, mm-hmm. uh, but also would be famous again as a, as a gospel city. Yeah. That would be a great thing to pray for. Amen. Amen. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for giving your time to be with us on the Reformation Fellowship podcast. It's been a joy to get to hear from you today. Thanks for the conversation. It's been great. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Reformation Fellowship podcast. We pray that this time together has been a blessing to you. The Reformation Fellowship is a ministry of union. And so all that we do, we hope it helps you to delight in God, grow in Christ, serve the church, and bless the world. If that is your hope, that is your desire, then friends, welcome to the fellowship.